and welcome back to the Room Madness Podcast, the podcast for everyone who is crazy about rheumatology. My name is David Leverance, and I am a rheumatologist specializing in medical education, corny jokes, quality improvement, and sharing my over-exuberant enthusiasm about rheumatology with others. I'm so glad you're here. Today, we are continuing on with our audiobook version of the scouting reports for the Room Madness Tournament. If you have already read these scouting reports, or if you're planning on reading them online, there's no need to listen to this podcast episode. We're only doing this because we want to make sure everyone has the opportunity to read these scouting reports so they can make informed decisions as they fill out their brackets. And we know it's difficult sometimes to sit down and read a lot of information, and some of you like to consume information in podcast form, so that's why we're doing this. So, In the previous episode, we read through the scouting reports created for the rheumatoid arthritis and gout regions, and today we will be reading through the scouting reports in the steroids and MSK regions in the tournament. The steroids region is comprised of two teams, the Samira study and harms of short-term steroid study, and the MSK region is comprised of teams called UK Frost study for a frozen shoulder and physical therapy versus glucocorticoid injections for knee osteoarthritis. So getting getting started first with the Samira study scouting report. This was written by a group of fellows at the Allogeny Health Network Division of Rheumatology. So thank you all to the authors of this one. It is really great. Um, This is based on the Burmester et al. study, uh, called continuing versus tapering glucocorticoids after achieving after achievement of low disease activity or remission in rheumatoid arthritis, Samira, a double-blind, multi-center, randomized controlled trial published in Lancet in 2020. And again, the authors of this scouting report are from the Allogeny Health Network Division of Rheumatology, and I'd encourage you to go to the um, website so you can read the scouting report yourself and see the author list. So the overview. Glucocorticoids have long been a bittersweet player in the treatment of patients with rheumatoid arthritis, pumping up the crowd with much-needed symptom relief while simultaneously getting their share of booze with long-term adverse side effects. In spite of widespread teaching that these medications should be in the game for shortest amount of time and with the lowest dose possible, two-thirds of patients in clinical practice receive glucocorticoids for longer than six months. Possible reasons for this lack of tapering may include the inducing disease flares, adrenal insufficiency, and withdrawal symptoms. A lack of evidence-based tapering strategies may also be adding to the hesitancy. In fact, a search of PubMed looking for double-blind placebo-controlled trials pertaining to glucocorticoid tapering in rheumatoid arthritis yields only one result, underscoring our dire need for further studies. The Steroid Elimination in Rheumatoid Arthritis, or SAMIRA trial, is the first trial of its kind to investigate a scheme with tapering low-dose steroids versus continuation in patients with rheumatoid arthritis and low disease activity. This multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial was done across 39 centers across six countries. Patients had a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis and maintained on tocilizumab and a stable 5 mg prednisone dose for four weeks prior to randomization, while having low disease activity using DAS ESR or DAS 28 ESR less than 3.2. 246 patients were randomized to one of two groups. 
one in which 5 milligrams of prednisone was continued daily, or a second in which they underwent a 1 milligram taper every four weeks until tapering off by week 16. After 24 weeks, the primary endpoint change in the DAS28 ESR from baseline was lower in the continued prednisone group, with a difference of minus 0.08, compared to the tapered group, 0.54. Of particular interest was the secondary endpoint, which showed that 65% of patients in the tapered group became prednisone-free without disease flare, without adrenal insufficiency, and remained in low disease activity. 77% of patients in the continued prednisone group were able to reach this endpoint as well. So implications for patients, providers, and researchers. The current implications. Talk about coming up in the clutch. Despite a mean disease duration of nine years and a history of prior biologic use in one-third of patients, many were able to successfully discontinue steroid therapy by the end of the trial. In fact, when compared to the group continuing steroids, eight patients would need to undergo steroid taper before one patient experienced a flare or loss of disease activity. With this number needed to harm, patients and providers should continue to view steroid taper as a natural next step in rheumatoid arthritis management. Also of note is that patients who flared were usually on prednisone 1 mg or 0 mg daily. Therefore, even a failed attempt can be viewed as an opportunity to reduce their daily steroid maintenance dose by more than 50%. Swoosh! Future implications. Providers should be reassured by the fact that no cases of adrenal insufficiency occurred in the prednisone withdrawal group. Given the high success rate, eventual withdrawal of steroid therapy can be viewed as a standard of care in all patients with rheumatoid arthritis. With the abundance of therapies available, patients who fail withdrawal should be offered therapy modification with the aim of one day attaining steroid-free remission. So will Samira win its first-round matchup? The fellows writing the scouting report uh, write, We believe Samira has the higher odds of winning its tough first round against the harms of short-term steroid study for numerous reasons. Firstly, our opponent's study is a self-controlled case series from only one healthcare system that makes it more vulnerable to bias. Samira, on the other hand, is the first of its kind and a good one at that. A double-blind, multi-center, randomized control trial across six countries to look at glucocorticoid tapering regimens in stable RA patients with stable biologic therapy. Moreover, Samira shows that an incredible two-thirds of stable rheumatoid arthritis patients were able to be safely tapered off steroids. That's a statistic that will be sure to bring the crowd to its feet. Additionally, a significant limitation of the harms of short-term steroid study is the lack of, acquire, uh, lack of accounting for possible confounding factors, and the study relies on prescription data of medrol dose packs, which is hardly the most commonly used modality for achieving RA disease control. Finally, the study did not have any patients with rheumatologic illnesses, and therefore the applicability to patients with RA is questionable. So, could Samira win it all? Is Samira the Cinderella story at this year's tournament? We think it's very possible that Samira can win the tournament and bring it all home. Let's review the facts. Samira is groundbreaking as the first randomized controlled trial evaluating prednisone taper in seven decades. Rheumatologists everywhere can unclutch their pearls now that we know adrenal insufficiency is not as big of a concern as it, uh, not as big of a problem as once, once feared. 
Rheumatologists can also pop their collars and show off their kicks as improvising tapers can become a thing of the past with Samir providing an evidence-based protocol. We'd say the outlook for Samir is pretty good in the first and second rounds alone based on the very practical implications of the study. These are results that will be referred to on a daily basis. Finally, it may not bring the flashiness of the SLE and ANCA trials, but we'd choose the solid and consistent performance of a trial like Samira, whose implications will be referred to daily, rather than the pizzazz of trials dealing with diseases far less common. So I really enjoyed this scouting report. Lots of excellent puns, but also some really awesome points. Um, I feel like in the early days of announcing the bracket, Samira was maybe overlooked as an underdog. Not many people were talking about it. And hopefully this scouting report will bring some awareness to this study as a, a truly uh, strong contender in the tournament. However, it does have a worthy challenger, as uh, the fellows point out. Um, so thank you again, by the way, to the fellows from Allegheny Health for your participation. That was awesome. Um, but it's got a worthy challenger, and that is the um, harms of short-term steroids. Um, or hosts, uh, which was reviewed by um, the fellows at the University of Kentucky Fellowship Program. So I'd encourage you again to go to the website and click on that scouting report to see the full author list, but really thankful for those fellows and their participation in this um, uh, scouting report um, creation. This one is also a good one. So uh, this a team is based on a study by Yao et al., uh, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2020. And here's their topic overview. This study examines the side effects of a short course of oral corticosteroid burst dosing, up to 14 days. The researchers reviewed the entire nationwide population of Taiwan using health insurance research database between the ages of 20 and 64 years that included more than 15 million adults with over 2 million who received at least one steroid burst in the final analysis. The median dose of steroid was prednisone 10 milligrams a day, and the median duration of use was three days. The most common indication of steroid use were skin diseases and respiratory illnesses. And they underline here, rheumatologic diseases were not listed among the conditions requiring steroid bursts. The researchers specifically looked at the risk of severe adverse effects, such as GI bleeding, sepsis, and heart failure, up to 90 days after steroid use. The incidence rate per 1,000 person year among steroid users were 27.1 for GI bleeding, 1.5 for sepsis, and 1.3 for heart failure. They found elevated risk of GI bleeding with an incidence rate uh, rate ratio of 1.8, sepsis with an incidence rate ratio of 1.99, and heart failure with an incidence rate uh, ratio of 2.37 in people who received steroid bursts compared to those who did not receive it. This risk was significantly increased within the first 5 to 30 days after the steroid dose, and then gradually decreased afterwards over the next 31 to 90 days, but was still significant. Final analysis adjusted for other concomitant medications that could confound the results, such as NSAIDs and PPIs. So what are the implications for patients, providers, and researchers? Current implications. This study emphasizes the elevated risk for side effects of even short-course use of steroids, which is an important consideration that rheumatology providers need to keep in mind when prescribing for disease flares. Evidence regarding short bursts of steroids regarding potential risks of treatment is limited. Thus, this study provides new insights into short-term risk following burst dosing. Now the future implications. 
The future implications of this study include making rheumatology providers more cognizant of the short-term risks associated with steroid bursts for disease flares. Additionally, this study did not focus on rheumatologic disease patients, but should encourage rheumatology researchers to specifically evaluate the use of steroid bursts in rheumatologic patients. Next steps may also implicate future research to determine optimal steroid burst duration to limit side effects and improve patient safety. So will this study win its first round matchup? The harms of short-term steroids are hosts, and Samira are both strong teams with a lot of potential. However, in a matchup, host has the upper hand because it is tackling the burning question that not only rheumatologists, but physicians of all fields face on a daily basis. Does this patient need a steroid taper today? Granted, the study was not focused on rheumatologic conditions per se. However, it managed to highlight the significant risk of steroids at doses and durations shorter than an average rheumatologist would prescribe. In a large population, healthier than rheumatologists see every day. This will make rheumatologists, as well as the general medical community, think twice before reaching for the electronic prescription pad. Samira, on the other hand, has the advantage of focusing on RA patients and is tackling the popular question of, does this RA patient need a steroid taper today? The trial highlights that steroid tapers are possibly used more often than required. However, results do not offer a clear guidance regarding a taper regimen. Both teams need follow-up studies to tailor their outcome. However, in a match against the two, it seems like winning the first round is a slam dunk for team hosts or the harms of short-term steroids. So could the harms of short-term steroids win it all? It's improbable, but not impossible for team harms of short-term steroids to win the tournament, as it could be a jumping off point for additional research for something miraculous like a steroid alternative with less side effects. Assuming team hosts can pull through to the final face-off, it should be wary of the Evacopan trial, as it may implicate the beginning of steroid alternatives. All right. So that was also an excellent scouting report. Thank you so much to the fellows at the University of Kentucky. This is a fun study to include in the tournament because it has us thinking a little bit outside of the rheumatology box, but still with important rheumatology implications. And I thought the fellows at the University of Kentucky did a really fantastic job of uh, reviewing its implications and thinking about its importance and comparing it to other, uh, other teams in the tournament. So thank you all for your participation and great job. All right. So that was the glucocorticoids or steroids region. Now moving on to the other region we are covering in this podcast episode, the MSK region. And in this region, we have the UK frost study uh, for frozen shoulder competing against a study of physical therapy versus glucocorticoid injections for knee osteoarthritis. So beginning with the UK frost study. This one was written by the Room Madness leadership team, essentially written primarily by Dr. Alan Witt, who's one of our resident members of the Room Madness leadership team and has done a fantastic job. Thank you, Dr. Witt, for putting this one together. And this study or this report is based on a study by Rangan et al. called Management of Adults with Primary Frozen Shoulder in Secondary Care, or UK Frost a multi-center, pragmatic, three-arm, superiority, randomized clinical trial. It was published in The Lancet in 2020. So here's the topic overview. Adhesive capsulitis, or frozen shoulder, results in gradual loss of passive and active range of motion in the glenohumeral joint and is usually accompanied by severe pain. Plain radiographs usually only show evidence of osteopenia. There, were, there are some nonspecific inflammatory or post-inflammatory soft tissue findings on ultrasound and MRI. 
It occurs in 8.2% of men and 10.1% of women of working age. This condition is usually self-limited, with functional limitation and pain lasting two to three years, but 40% of patients have persistent mild symptoms and 6% with severe pain and loss of function at four years. Current UK national physiotherapy guidelines recommend exercise and manual therapy, either in isolation or in supplement uh, or to supplement steroid injections, manipulation under anesthesia, or arthroscopic capsular release. The purpose of this trial was to determine any potential difference in efficacy or cost-effectiveness of a corticosteroid injection plus early structured physiotherapy versus manipulation under anesthesia or arthroscopic capsular release. This was a multi-center pragmatic superiority randomized trial comparing the three parallel groups. All patients were referred to secondary care for primary frozen shoulder. Patients with symptoms secondary to trauma, radiographic evidence of other causes, or unable to tolerate surgery were excluded. Patients were randomly allocated in a respect respective fat in a respective two to two to one ratio to arthroscopic capsular release, manipulation under anesthesia, or steroid injection, and then early structured physiotherapy. Procedural groups also got the same physiotherapy post-procedure. Primary outcome was the Oxford Shoulder Score, a 12-item patient-reported measure of pain and function. Other outcomes included visual analog scale, 0 to 100 of patient-perceived extent of recovery. All outcome measures conducted at 3, 6, and 12 months after randomization. Cost-effectiveness of each therapy in the UK health system was also an outcome measure, taking into account for each group the cost of initial intervention, hospitalizations, and any further interventions in the 12-month period. In terms of results, there was no clinical difference in effectiveness between the three groups. Capsular release was associated with a greater risk of adverse events. Manipulation under anesthesia was considered the most cost-effective based on elaborate statistical modeling. Patients who got early physiotherapy were more likely to pursue additional therapies, but also the only group without any serious adverse events. So implications for patients, providers, and researchers. Current implications. Steroid injection in 12 weeks of appropriate physiotherapy is just as effective as the most popular procedural options for patients referred to secondary care for primary frozen shoulder. This has enormous implications for patients who are concerned about or at higher risk for adverse events from procedures. For providers, this means that prior to referral to surgery, there should be at least a discussion about starting physical therapy or restarting physical therapy, perhaps with a different therapist than was originally used. If patients are insistent on a procedure, it seems that a manipulation may be the most reasonable option, given relative safety and cost effectiveness. This is a practice-changing study for a difficult-to-treat, painful, and disabling condition that affects a large proportion of workers. If the cost-effectiveness data translates well into healthcare settings beyond the UK, these findings would lead to large savings in healthcare expenditures without changing efficacy of treatment or patient perception of wellness. Future Implications 60% of all the patients in this study had already completed physical therapy for the same shoulder with the same symptoms. Patients had on average 10.5 months of symptoms prior to randomizations. So the end point of 12 months means about two years post-onset. This implies that not all physical therapy is equated equal, is created equal, and or multiple rounds of physical therapy are often required. No additional training was necessary, and standard therapies were used for the structured physical therapy, but the protocol was developed specifically for the study, and was based on a survey of UK shoulder specialist physiotherapists. 
If, as this study has shown, early physical therapy can be safer and just as effective for patients, then perhaps we should more then perhaps we should more closely examine the regimens and delivery models for physical therapy. It would be interesting to see this same structured early PT program implemented near to onset of symptoms in a research study, which may help answer the important question of whether these patients should start benefiting earlier in the course. So will UK Frost for Frozen Shoulder win its first round matchup? Its first opponent, PT versus corticosteroid injections for knee osteoarthritis, is similar in many ways. Both represent a win for physical therapy over procedural care. The corticosteroid injection versus PT and knee osteoarthritis trial is a very clean one-to-one design that does a great job of showing that PT is better than steroid injection. I'm not sure how practice-changing this really will be, though, given that the study did not look at steroid injection plus physical therapy, which is a common treatment that I suspect will continue and uh, may be superior to either treatment alone. Also, UK Frost had a more robust sample size, and so were able to clearly demonstrate the clinical soundness of avoiding surgery or procedure under anesthesia, thus avoiding all the costs and comorbidities that go along with it. It is a study that leads to reduction of truly serious adverse events and saves millions of dollars in healthcare costs. UK Frost will undoubtedly give corticosteroid versus PT the proverbial cold shoulder on its way out to the next round. Could UK Frost win it all? It ticks all the boxes. Is it practice changing? Check. Is it practice changing in a way that will substantially save healthcare costs? Check. Will it lead to reduction in serious adverse events and comorbidity for patients? Check. That being said, it can be difficult for a team out of the MSK bracket to go all the way when it is not a classic autoimmune rheumatologic disease. For this reason, this team is a dark horse, but its potential to add value for patient care is tremendous. I think it will clear the first round, but may have difficulty contending with other trials looking at therapy for more traditional rheumatologic disorders like Samira. All right. So that was a great scouting report. Thanks so much, Dr. Witt and the Rheumatist team for uh, working on that one. Uh, it, it is a really interesting study, and one of the purposes of uh, Rheumatis is to help us explore studies and um, areas that we may not obviously may not come across regularly. Um, so I really hope people enjoy this MSK region, and I really enjoyed learning about the results of this trial and therapies for frozen shoulder. Uh, but as Dr. Witt mentioned, it does have a worthy challenger, and that is physical therapy versus glucocorticoid injection for knee osteoarthritis scouting report. Um, and this was uh, written by um, a team from the Oceaner Medical Center. So thank you so much to that team as well. Um, this was the first scouting report to come in. You guys were fast, um, and it was really fun to read through your scouting report. So thank you so much. Um, for putting this one together. I think it does a fantastic job um, and a really thorough job of reviewing this topic. Now, I am going to abbreviate this scouting report a little bit, um, but I'd encourage all of you to go on the site to read the full scouting report. Again, it's very thorough, and I'm going to hit the highlights of this scouting report on this podcast, Um, but it does a really good job of going through this really interesting and important study. So this team is based on a study by uh, Dale et al. In, uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2020, looking at physical therapy versus glucocorticoid injections for knee osteoarthritis. So uh, the group from Oceaner Medical Center starts out with a topic overview that knee osteoarthritis is a very common problem in the United States and also a leading cause of disability. Unlike in rheumatoid arthritis, where disease-modifying agents are the norm, we have no such luxury in the management of osteoarthritis. There are many clinical trials which have shown promising results for compounds that arrest structural progression, 
which include cathepsin inhibitors, Wnt inhibitors, anabolic growth factors, and reduced pain, which include nerve growth factor inhibitors. But to date, there are no drugs that are FDA-approved. Managing the symptoms is the mainstay. This includes pain management and therapies which focus on improving the quality of life. Data from varying population cohorts suggest that nearly 40 to 50% of the patients in the cohort receive intra-articular steroid injections prior to total knee replacements. In our day-to-day practice, we offer physical therapy for many of our patients, but not all of them consistently respond to the treatment offered. Similarly, we offer intra-articular corticosteroid injections with varying results. So the trial, uh, we're going to skip down to talking about the randomized controlled trial. This trial was designed to compare physical therapy to intra-articular corticosteroid injections in a primary care setting in the U.S. military health system. This is not a placebo-controlled trial. Patients who are active duty or retired service members of the military health system and their family members with good access to health care participated in the trial. Hence, noncompliance and significant dropout rates was not an issue here. Patients were randomly assigned in a one-to-one ratio to receive intra-articular corticosteroid injections or to undergo physical therapy. The mean body mass index of the entire cohort was 31.5, which is obese, which is always thought to be a risk factor for knee osteoarthritis. All patients had to meet the criteria laid out by the American College of Rheumatology Clinical Classification Criteria for Osteoarthritis of the Knee. They had to have radiographic evidence of osteoarthritis on weight-bearing views assessed by the Kelgren-Lawrence Scale, grading systems 1 through 4. This is an important highlight since this gives an opportunity to review the benefits of the therapy intervention on varying severity of knee osteoarthritis. However, it so happens that the majority of patients in the intraarticular corticosteroid injection harm arm had Kelgren-Lawrence grade 2, while the majority of patients in the physical therapy arm had grade 3 scores. Not many patients had grade 1 scoring, and a very few of them in both arms had grade 4 scoring. And a lot more patients in the physical therapy arm had grade 4 as compared to patients in the corticosteroid arm. To summarize, patients in the physical therapy arm had severe radiographic knee osteoarthritis as opposed to the intraarticular corticosteroid injection arm. Patients had physical therapy interventions, including instructions and images for exercises for common joint mobilizations. There were hands-on manual techniques offered by the physical therapist. Patients underwent up to eight physical therapy treatment sessions over the initial four- to six-week period, and patients could ask for additional one- to three sessions at four-month and nine-month intervals. Patients in this group attended a mean of 11.8 treatment visits, range being between four and 22. Patients could get up to three intraarticular corticosteroid injections in the one-year time period. Patients in this group received a mean of 2.6 injections, range being from one to four. Also noted was an overlap in the treatment interventions. 9% in the physical therapy arm also received intraarticular steroid injections, and 18% in the intraarticular corticosteroid injection arm received physical therapy in addition. The majority of patients had symptoms for an average of 100 months. Symptoms included new swelling, locking, giving way feeling, and 60% of patients in both arms had bilateral knee osteoarthritis. Statistical analyses were performed with the use of intention-to-treat approach. Very clear primary outcome measures were defined early on, the main primary outcome being the total score on the Western Ontario and McMaster University's Osteoarthritis Index, also known as WOMAC, at one year. WOMAC contains 24 items and is composed of three subscales of pain, physical function, and stiffness. Scores range from 0 to 240, and higher scores indicate worse pain, function, and stiffness. 
The secondary outcomes were the time needed to compete, uh, complete the timed up-and-go test with the score on the global rating of change scale at one year. The trial was sufficiently powered to meet the primary and secondary endpoints. Okay, so the trial results. 156 patients with the mean age of 56 years were selected, and each group had 78 patients, all with well-matched baseline characteristics, including pain, severity, disability, and the baseline WOMAC scores were also well-matched. At one year, the group that underwent physical therapy met the primary and secondary outcome measures more than the group that had intraarticular steroid injections. The mean baseline WOMAC scores were 108 in the glucocorticoid injection group and 107 in the physical therapy group. At one year, the mean scores were 55.8 and 37.0, respectively. Mean uh, between group difference of 18.8 points. Favoring, a finding favoring physical therapy. Other outcome measures worth noting include the following. 10% of patients in the physical therapy arm and 25% of patients in the intraarticular corticosteroid injection arm had no improvement from baseline, meaning they could not meet the 12% improvement in the minimal clinically important difference in the WOMAC score at one year. The median score on the global rating of change scale in both arms was above the clinically meaningful threshold of perceived improvement, but a lot more patients in the intraarticular corticosteroid injection arm than in the physical arm physical therapy arm did not report any perceived improvement on the scale. And 14% of patients in the physical therapy arm and 33% of patients in the intraarticular corticosteroid injection arm did not have a score on the global rating of change scale of plus three or higher at one year. The authors therefore concluded that physical therapy did a better job in controlling pain and improving the functional disability at one year and is favored over intraarticular corticosteroid injections. Interestingly, the mean cost for all knee-related medical care during the one-year trial was similar in the two groups. So, what are the main takeaway points from the study? The trial was designed to compare physical therapy to intraarticular corticosteroid injections in patients with symptomatic clinical and radiographic osteoarthritis in one or both knees and showed that physical therapy was more effective than glucocorticoid injections as assessed by the total WOMAC score and performance of functional tasks. The advantage of this study is the long duration of follow-up, since previously short courses of physical therapy for four weeks at a time did not show short-term benefits, but by one year, the mean WOMAC scores would regress toward the baseline values. What we also learned from this trial is the additional impact of educational sessions and periodic follow-up visits with clinicians and a change in interventions when necessary in managing our knee osteoarthritis patients, a dynamic world that is very similar to rheumatoid arthritis. Although intraarticular corticosteroid injections do offer short-term improvement, physical therapy shows both short-term and long-term benefits. They then conjecture if this is going to be their standard of care. As with any trial, there are definitely limitations, and they are as follows. Patients who were assigned to physical therapy arm had more visits with the healthcare provider than patients assigned to the intraarticular corticosteroid injection group. Patients had overlapping treatments, which might have altered the trial conclusions, and a significant number of patients in both arms did not meet the primary and secondary outcomes. Few patients, despite all the interventions, had their knees replaced. Few patients needed more than three intraarticular corticosteroid injections, and few patients needed more than the assigned number of physical therapy sessions. Most importantly, this was an unblinded trial, hence bias cannot be ruled out. Their conclusions from this study are as follows. Although physical therapy for patients with knee osteoarthritis will be the standard of care in their clinical practice, it will not discourage patients from getting intraarticular steroid injections. 
This group also then went through implications for patients, providers, and researchers, both now and in the future. And I will just refer you to this section in the scouting report where they give an amazing review of the treatment guidelines that have been proposed by various uh, societies, such as the Osteoarthritis Research Society International Guidelines, the American College of Rheumatology, and an American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, and then also a really amazing recent review of the diagnosis and treatment of hip and knee osteoarthritis published by Dr. Katz et al. with a really excellent um, table. So will this win the first round matchup or possibly the whole tournament? They are hopeful. Uh, They point out the following points. Osteoarthritis is the most common joint disease, affecting an estimated more than 240 million people worldwide, including an estimated more than 32 million in the United States. Osteoarthritis is the most frequent reason for activity limitation in adults. It causes a lot of joint dysfunction, pain, stiffness, functional limitation, loss of valued activities, and such as walking and exercising. Knee osteoarthritis is the most common joint along with hip osteoarthritis, which undergoes these changes. It is estimated that 30% of individuals older than 45 years have radiographic evidence of knee osteoarthritis, and of these, 50% have symptomatic knee osteoarthritis. Osteoarthritis also leads to substantial cost. 43% of the 54 million individuals in the United States living with arthritis experience uh, arthritis-related uh, limitations in daily activities. Wage losses due to osteoarthritis amount to $65 billion, and direct medical costs exceed $100 billion. Persons with knee osteoarthritis spend an average of about $15,000 over their lifetime on direct medical costs of osteoarthritis. Osteoarthritis is commonly associated with comorbidities, which may stem from the lack of physical activity, medication toxicity, and effects of inflammatory cytokines. Persons with knee osteoarthritis have approximately 20% excess mortality compared with age match controls, in part because of lower levels of physical therapy. And then they write, I'm hoping that they have justified how important this study is in our day-to-day clinical practice. So thank you again to the group from Oceaner Medical Center. This is really an amazing scouting report and really a wonderful review of knee osteoarthritis and its management. Um, So I'd encourage all those looking for an update to go and check this one out. And it really shows how um, uh, these MSK region teams actually have a strong chance in the tournament. So thank you all. I'm really looking forward to your participation in the tournament. Don't forget to tell your friends and submit your brackets and talk about um, how your teams do. Thanks. Thanks.